With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's Coach Spins. Adam, what's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, Saturday night here, as we're recording in the United States, actually pretty peaceful weekend here. My wife is away. Uh, She's been instructed not to FaceTime during this episode now that she knows we're recording. So hoping for uh, just a little bit more downtime before some travel from work for me. But great college football Saturday. And uh, it's just good to be in the swing of fall here in the States. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited. It's been a good Australian football weekend. It's been a good weekend in general, just kind of trying to gear up for the start of this season, watching a lot of tape uh, on prospects because, you know, just like Amin and Asor Thompson and Nikola Jurisic played last week, uh, we had Victor Wembanyama this weekend uh, playing in I guess what I would call a little event uh, call, it's like this pro stars event where they invite six teams in and, you know, you play a couple of them here and there. And, you know, it's this little tournament in France. I don't even know if I want to call it a tournament. It's more just like an early season thing where, uh, you know, teams get to, you know, get some chemistry playing with one another. Obviously European teams, typically they're bringing new guys in, bringing, you know, guys are leaving, etc. You're trying to build some chemistry early in the season. And Victor Wembanyama played, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to also do a new concept here on the show, somewhat inspired by Nate Jones tweeting out an awesome question uh, over the weekend. Would you rather have Scotty Barnes or Anthony Edwards moving forward? Uh, And also like partially inspired on the polls that Adam does, you know, every Friday on prospects, basically, where he's asking questions. Who would you take? Oscar Shibwe or Trace Jackson Davis, right? So we're going to do something called NBA Prospect Wars. We have six matchups, basically, where we've come up with, would you rather have this guy or that guy that we think are pretty close and that we think are really, really interesting to talk about. But we're going to start on Vic because really interesting game here because he played the best offensive game I've ever seen him play. And I don't know about you. I've probably watched somewhere between – 15 and 20 Victor Wimbanyama games at this point. I I wouldn't say like I'm a completist that like has watched all of his Osvell games in Euro league last year. Far from that. Uh, I've watched probably most of his games that he played uh, at the U19 where they played against Chet Holmgren and Jaden Ivey. Uh, I watched, you know, probably eight or nine of his games last year with Osvell and EuroLeague. And then uh, also caught this one uh, and probably a couple others. I caught a couple when he was playing for uh, Center Federal, uh, like the youth team that plays Espoir uh, in France, the one that he was playing with Usman Jeng. Uh, so I've caught quite a few of Vic's games, and this was the best game I've ever seen him play offensively. I think the numbers probably back that up. 34 points. Uh, I think he had five rebounds. 
four blocks. He went 10 of 18 from the field, 13 of 13 from the line because he drew eight fouls in this game. It was a very impressive performance. And I do want to just like start this by giving some context, right? Uh, This game was, I don't think I would say there was no defense played. I would say that it wasn't defense optional. It was maybe defense suggested is a fair way to put it uh, as opposed to like defense. Like if we're going on like that scale, right. From defense optional to defense suggested to defense required. Right. It's kind of like somewhere in the middle because this is an early season game. This game does not count toward like any standings or anything. Uh, It's clear that these teams were really just trying to like get some things together. Uh, They played Hapoel Halom, which is a team in uh, Israel that has some pretty good players. Like Joe Ragland last year, their point guard, uh, made the All-Champions League team first team. Uh, Chris Johnson is a former like swingman at Dayton that also made the All-Champions League first team last year. Sean Dawson is a guy that's played Summer League. Uh, Marvin Jones is a guy that, like, was I think the SWAC defensive player of the year and like has carved out a nice little career overseas for himself. Kenny Kaji uh, is a well-known player that uh, has had some success overseas, but obviously was at Miami for quite a long time, uh, a little bit older at this point. But this is not a, this is a genuinely strong professional team is what I would say. And that's how I would describe them. I wouldn't say that they are like a EuroLeague team, I wouldn't say that they are a college team. They're somewhere in the middle and they are a real like level up in terms of competition from the college game. And from, I would even say like mega when we talked last week about the Thompson twins playing mega, I would say this team is even a level above that at this point. Now, I'll just kind of, I just kind of wanted to lay out that context in terms of what we were watching when we watched Vic. What was your impression of Victor Wembanyama uh, in this game? Uh, we're getting the full experience this year, Sam. Uh, the, <laughs> the the reins are dropped. This guy is just going to be able to let it fly and do a lot of different things on the floor. I know last time we recorded and talked about Victor Wembanyama, my one plea from this year is I just want to see the full range of experiences and everything that he can yep. do. Well, we got our wish here. Uh, with the the scrimmage or or you know exhibition game, whatever we want to call it, that took place a little yep. bit earlier today, I was impressed in a lot of different ways offensively with the foul drawing, with particularly his jump shooting. Uh, he seems to be getting a little bit more elevation on his stroke right now, which you know when you're essentially eight feet tall and you release that, you don't necessarily need it, but it's going to provide consistency across his pull up as well as his catch and shoot hit a couple movement shots. Uh, it's just, I don't know how to describe the Victor Wembanyama experience other than to say that I laugh probably three times a game watching him just because some yeah. of the things that he does are absurdly ridiculous. Like there was one play where I forget who it was for Metropolitans, got the defensive rebound and Victor was already leaking out a little bit down the court and was you know, had a wide-open, uncontested dunk if he wanted. But the pass, as soon as it left the hand of the outlet passer, looked like it was going to sail out of bounds. There's no way Victor Wembanyama was going to be able to catch up to it. Not only does he get there, he gets to it at basically the top of the key, 
doesn't take a dribble and just lays it over the top of the basket and in, in two steps. It's just, it's laughable what this guy can do. Uh, I want to see a lot more polish. I I think I'm trying not to overreact to an early season game in that regard, but offensively just such a great combination of skill and a lot more polish as a perimeter handler player, uh, smart player than the last time we saw him. In footwork as well, like his footwork has also really improved. I think there was a sequence where he catches the ball in the mid post and does like a dream shake into a step back fade away from like 15 feet. And you're just like, wait, what What was, wait, what? Like, how did that just happen? Uh, he also hit this ridiculous, like essentially like fading, uh, coming around a dribble handoff where he takes the dribble handoff, uh, fading to his right, which is a ridiculously hard shot for a right-handed shooter. And he just plants, off, plants, takes the shot off the hop, fading to his right, and just cans a three on the move like it's nothing. It's just like, wait, how did this just happen? Like, wh- this is like an alien we're watching right now. Um, it, you really just get that feeling. And like, on some level, you do want to... I think that there's a difference between being novel and like something being novel and something being good. Right. And I think that we often conflate the two in terms of like, if we see something that we don't often see, which would fall into the novel bucket, we're just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Right. Everything that Victor Wembanyama is doing here, we've just never seen it before. This guy is seven foot four and his coordination and balance and ability to just like, move like a wing kind of warps our brain in a real way, I think. Right. But here's the other thing. I mean, what we saw today was not just novel from an offensive shot creation perspective. It was good. Like it was unquestionably an impressive performance from a guy that, you know, what we talked about was we want to see him really explore the studio space offensively. Right. That's what we got to see. That's absolutely what we got to see today. I'm really excited to see where this goes moving forward. Um, I will again note the the way that defense was played in this game, I think plays into Victor Wembenyama's hands a little bit because he is someone that like, if you try to get under him and try to play physically with him, that is the kind of stuff that can bother him. Having said that, he is clearly adjusting to some of these things with rip through moves and the ability to draw fouls uh, with his fluidity at seven foot four. Again, he drew eight fouls in this game. A number of them were on jump shots. Like it, it was very, very impressive. And he got like, he got a couple superstar calls already. Weirdly. Like there was one where uh, I think it was Marvin Jones, like closed out to him uh, on a three point shot. And, I don't know. Like, I guess he sort of kind of landed in his space a little bit, but wasn't really. wasn't. He didn't catch him at all, and they gave him the foul call. Uh, There were a couple of those today, but even if you take away those, like, he still had 30 points, right? So it was was a ridiculously impressive performance. Uh, How he adjusts to physicality playing professional basketball um, when defenses gear up, that's what I'm watching for. I also would like to see him, like, make high level passing reads uh, and just start uh, making those a little bit more. There were a couple plays where he got a little bit sped up because it seemed like he was trying to score for himself as opposed to like seeing the floor and like really trying to attack that way. But that'll come. I think like that again, some of this stuff is just such nitpicking uh, for a guy that was playing basically a preseason game and just played what 
I think was the best offensive game I've ever seen him play. So you don't want to dive too far into the weeds, exactly like you said, but it was it was a very impressive showcase for 85% of what we're hoping to see from Vic this year. The other 15% is passing and staying healthy. Like <laughs> we know that Victor Wembanyama is good. We just need him to stay healthy at the end of the day. And that's kind of what it comes down to. Well, and it, there's no doubt after watching the, the performance that, that we did earlier today, this is going to be his show. He's going to be able to work through some of those warts and, and have the ball in his yeah. hands enough where the passing either you know, gets exposed as an area he needs to continue to improve or he, he tightens it up by the time the NBA draft is here and going through a full season. There was one possession in the first half where I think he had a a left wing isolation on somebody who was maybe three and a half feet shorter than him. Like just an absurd thing to watch on tape, how he towers over a point guard. And they were bringing a double team uh, from, I believe the top of the key and Vic kind of just drives baseline, slowly spinning and prodding to try to get there, not necessarily scanning the defense. Like he's going to have to gain awareness of how he specifically is going to be covered but there is, like you said, this is the first time we've ever seen a player like this. There's no one else film-wise to really study, to break down and say, okay, see what this guy does. This is what you need to do in the situation, Vic. There's no blueprint for this. It's going to be a work in progress. So I'm willing to, to live with some of the mistakes on feel early on and knowing that the fluidity of the skills that he has and, and just the physical traits are so special. He's a slam dunk in terms of investment. Yeah. And again, like, I I don't know if we're going to get to slam dunk just because we need him to stay healthy. If he stays healthy this year, maybe he's a slam dunk, but like, we need to see that. That's the critical aspect of this. But I I don't want to belabor what is like, you know, something in the vein of a like preseason, early season basketball game that feels uh, a bit aggressive, even for our brains. Okay, let's get into prospect wars. Uh, Just again, I want to shout out Nate Jones because this question that we're going to pose here at the top, um, it just like kind of broke my brain in such a way that I was like, we got to just do this on the podcast and we got to create like a whole segment around it, I feel like, because that'll be more fun just to kind of dive into this and talk about it. So NBA prospect wars, maybe we'll do this like throughout the year a couple of times, because I just think this is like enjoyable. Like we had some other matchups that we tried to pose and I was like, I don't know. I think we got to save some for later in the year to like, kind of, kind of talk about. And that's why some of these that we're going to do, not like, you know, all-star level players. We're going to do a couple that are like interesting and a couple that we find fascinating moving forward. Right. Um, Having said that, I thought that all of these kind of pose differing questions about team building in a pretty substantial way. And it's worth noting as well here that uh, we're talking about long-term trajectory, not just where they are right now. So it's who would you take over the next 10 years, not who would you take at this specific instance in time. And on top of that, Adam is going to do polls on the Box and One Twitter account. Go to his Twitter account. Please uh, follow Adam, first and foremost. But we're going to have uh, polls up to be able to actually vote on these things. Okay. With all that being said, 
Our first one, we've referenced it a couple of times here. Prospect war number one. Anthony Edwards versus Scotty Barnes. Who would you take moving forward? Adam, the floor is yours. Yeah, and and Sam, I uh, I definitely sarcastically appreciate you having me go first on this question. And, and I know, as I said to you before we started recording, like this is opening myself up to just essentially debate my own brain here on the podcast because a lot of these are going to be really tough questions. I think that's why we pose them to each other because we see the merit in the debate around this. Anthony Edwards, Scotty Barnes, I love them both. And to me, the answer to this question is going to come down to how you view Scotty's offensive trajectory and development yeah. over the long term. I believe in it a lot, but I think when you're comparing him to what I believe is a really certain offensive contributor, we've already seen it from Anthony Edwards in a playoff series on a, a pretty impressive level. We know how much room he has to continue to grow on that end of the floor. I am going to go with Anthony Edwards. I value a little bit more of his self-creation ability. I don't think he sacrifices a ton in terms of defensive aptitude. It's a very different type of, of defensive ceiling. Scotty is more multi-positional, more Swiss Army knife type of a guy. Anthony, I think, can be a lockdown defender at multiple positions in a playoff series and multiple positions that are key to winning a playoff series. So, I'm going to go with Anthony Edwards just with the combination of a little bit higher offensive ceiling and not being disrupted or, or bothered by where his defense is at. Yeah, this is a hard one. I think that if we're talking about like upside, I think Anthony Edwards upside is higher because we've just seen so much more as a shot maker at this point, right? Like Anthony Edwards ability to get to his shot whenever he wants is just ridiculous. Like, it's truly ridiculous. The mix of coordination, power, explosiveness, athletically, uh, like balance to get to the step back whenever he wants, um, the ability to stop on a dime. Like, Scotty Barnes is an incredible athlete. Scotty doesn't really have that, like, fluidity that Anthony Edwards has. He's just bigger, which gives him a significant marginal advantage on Ant right uh being six foot nine with a seven foot three wingspan versus being six foot five with a six foot ten wingspan is a big deal uh we've just seen the shot making from anthony edwards in such a substantial way like with scotty barnes scotty barnes's jumper was drastically better and i think we talked about this uh on the eastern conference um win losses uh over under win losses with robbie calland that we did uh scotty barnes for all of the talk about how much better his jump shot was last year he still shot about 30 percent from three and shot 39 percent from between 10 and 23 feet last year it's still a work in progress in a substantial way uh even though it was much better and much more ready than what we saw uh that makes it a little bit tricky when trying to evaluate where his game goes moving forward. Uh, I really like Scotty. I thought Scotty was a good defender last year. I think that like some of the all defense stuff, like as soon as like this season or next season that I've seen, like projecting out for him moving forward from some people seems a bit aggressive to me. Like there were times where I thought that like, 
particularly like explosive or flexible, like coordinated guards were able to like kind of get it, get an advantage on him a little bit more than what maybe got stated. Like I remember distinctly, like there was a game against the Warriors, maybe, I don't know, 30, 20 games into his rookie season where like you could kind of see that a little bit more. And he got a little bit better certainly throughout the season, but uh, you know, and, and here we are just like kind of, it's what's disappointing about this like concept is we're kind of like shitting on Scotty Barnes a little bit. And I don't want to do that. Scotty is like an incredibly versatile chess piece where like, I think that if you made me pick who out of these two guys has the best, like median outcome, like, you know, I think I would take Scotty because like Scotty's versatility is flexibility positionally. Like you might be able to play him at the three. You might be able to play him at the five. Uh, you might be able to like, if you get certain guys around him, because I don't think Toronto is anywhere near like what their final, you know, roster is going to look like around Scotty Barnes long-term once he's in his prime, uh, just given the ages of the guys they have on their roster, like this team will look different in five years, just as all teams will look different in five years, basically. Uh, I think as you get, even more flexible chess pieces around Scotty, he might be able to play like small ball five to close games as he gets stronger. He might be able to play like, you know, uh, point guard, uh, like quote unquote lead guard where he's like initiating the offense from time to time. That flexibility is like a chess piece in the playoffs. I think has potential to be incredibly valuable. It's just for me, and like he's way better offensively than what we thought he was going to be coming into the year last year. Like his ability to get to the rim, his ability to finish, his ability to uh, create shots in a real way, especially out in transition, was critical. I just think that we need to see a little bit more from him in terms of half court ability uh, before we like start diving into is his ceiling as high as Anthony Edwards ceiling. Uh, th- that's like a, that's a really close one for me though. Cause man, do I like Scotty? Well, and I think part of the reason that the question seems close for people is the, the misrepresentation of Anthony Edwards defense. I, I think that he got off to probably a slower start as a rookie on that end. Minnesota just hasn't been very good as a team. So it's hard for a guy like that to stand out. But if you watched him play against the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, over the, the final few weeks of his season. He is a very, very talented one-on-one defender where I don't worry about him at all come playoff time. Yes, he has things to learn in terms of not getting back cut, not falling asleep away from the ball in certain circumstances, but I'm ready to buy in on Anthony Edwards being an above-average defender. So to me, uh, that, that was really all it took to sew up taking Ant over Scotty. And I'll say this, like Scotty's a better team defender than what yeah. – Anthony Edwards is because that's like the place that you can maybe catch Ant sometimes is like I wouldn't even go as far as like falling asleep but you can just like kind of catch him in his reactivity like a split second off right um yeah man it's I think I would take Anthony Edwards because I think the ceiling for Anthony Edwards based off of that playoff series we just saw against Memphis is like this can be a top five, top three player in the league if his development goes right over the next like five or six years. Uh, for Scotty, I see it more as like he can be a top 10 player in the league if his development goes right. Um, 
I don't know. Am I wrong about that? Am I, am I like too high on Anthony Edwards? Like thinking that that can be his, cause like think about who's in the league right yeah. now. Like Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic. Um, you know, there, there are so many good young players, obviously, that we're going to continue to talk about. Uh, like, is that too high? For Anthony Edwards, like John Morant is incredible. I mean, you can just like kind of go up and down the list, right? Yeah, I, I don't think in terms of highest level outcome, it's it's definitely not too high to be talking about. Uh, you know, Scotty to me, I think he does have a really really high level uh, upside to him, but he's mm-hmm. just he's a little bit stiff in some ways in in the way that he moves. Like I. I often think of him as a, a miniature Giannis who can only move in right angles. Like to me, that's Scotty Barnes where his hips, like something to it is just a little bit square in some ways that the idealized version of him has that versatility, has that dominance. But like you said, the offense in the half court is just not quite there to a point where you can safely project that that's where it's going to be. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, okay. Prospect war number two. Two more elite level young players, two players that are drastically different, just drastically different in the way that they play basketball on the court. Uh, theoretically positionally flexible in one case, like unequivocally positionally flexible in another case. It's Evan Mobley versus Zion Williamson. Adam, yeah. would you take Mobley or Zion? moving forward yeah, i was gonna say let me guess i'm going first here um yeah i <laughs> i'll go I, first next time <laughs> no it's fine it's fine i i i did think this one out and this is a little bit clearer for me than maybe some of the other ones that we'll talk about later so uh i think we just forget a little bit how damn good zion williamson was a year ago that having a having a year off worrying about the injuries and the question marks there it, it overshadows just how productive he was. The final half of, of that season, the final 41 games that he played, almost 29 points, seven boards, four assists, one and a half stocks, steals and blocks combined, 62% from the field. He's operating as a point guard, a point center, point forward. He's physically manhandling anybody in the league. And I think that, you can construct a roster with versatile pieces around him in ways they're going to allow him to be successful on the defensive end. So I'm sure that the pro Mobley argument is going to talk a lot about defense, but I just Zion is so imposing in every aspect of the game. I, I think that I think it's pretty clear for me. I'm going with him. Okay. So the Zion case is good. The Mobley case is based on defense and health, right? Like, because the end of the day, we're we have to account for all of these factors, right? And Zion Williamson has missed time due to injury at this point. There's just no way around it, and he missed time in high school occasionally due to injury. Like, this is something that has followed him a bit, unfortunately. Now, Evan Mobley is. About as versatile a defensive piece is what you're going to find. Uh, as I talked about on the podcast with Cole Huff, the awards podcast, this is someone that I think is going to win a defensive player of the year award. Uh, we figured out that we probably shouldn't predict that for this year or next year, given that 
fourth year is the earliest we think that anyone in the last 40 years has won defensive player of the year. Uh, that feels, it feels aggressive even with how advanced he is. I thought he had the best defensive rookie season of the last 20 years. So maybe like we advance that by a year, but you know, 25 to one, Evan Mobley defensive player of the year was, uh, I had to kind of sell myself out of it almost. That's how good he is defensively at this point. Uh, he is able to guard like perimeter players and stay in front of elite level guards. He's a terrific weak side rim protector. He's a great help defender just across the board. Like he just closes gaps, closes lanes. And the other thing is that because he's so versatile and because he's so uh, mobile defensively, he allows you to play two centers on the court, which is enormous for a team's defense because you're just going to clog up everything that a team can do. It's really hard to find guys like, for instance, a Giannis that allows you to play two six foot 11, seven foot tall guys on the court. That's part of why Milwaukee's defense is so good. They have multiple rim protectors. If you pull one guy away from the basket, you still have the other guy there. It's harder to get that mismatch to drive to the rim consistently uh, against a team that has two seven footers out there. But the only way that you can get two seven footers out there is if one of them can defend perimeter players. And that's like almost fucking impossible to find for seven footers, right? Because they're just not, typically is athletic as guards. So I look at what Evan Mobley is capable of on defense. I think he's going to be the critical piece of great, great defenses long-term. Some of the flashes we've seen in terms of his shot making are interesting. He's still not quite there yet. He's nowhere near the impact player off like, Zion Williamson is offensively, but here's what I would ask you. Do we think that Evan Mobley's defense and Zion Williamson's offense are like pretty close in terms of like what their long-term impact is? I think I'm going to give you a cop-out answer. I think they are pretty close. I still think elite level offense beats elite level defense. Yeah, I agree with that. That's actually what I was going to say next that we both believe that offense is more important than defense. It's kind of been proven in the playoffs that like, if you just have a dude that is just unstoppable on offense, that guy's probably going to be better. But how far ahead of Zion Williamson's defense is Evan Mobley's offense already? I think it's a lot to be honest. Uh, Zion is a fairly negative defender at this point. Evan Mobley's like a, pretty good offensive like he's not a great offensive player yet but he's pretty solid like he's an above average offensive player i don't know you throw in the injury stuff if it wasn't for the questions i had about zion williamson staying healthy i would take zion williamson because i agree with you i think that great offense trumps great defense but throwing in the full picture I think I would take Evan Mobley long term. And I think we're disagreeing on this one. Let's go. Yeah, about that. Give me give me a rebuttal. Come on. <laughs> so the rebuttal for me revolves around the trend that we're seeing in the NBA in terms of roster construction of more bigger, longer, fluid, interchangeable types of pieces. 
that you don't have to be an Evan Mobley type of player, a Chet Holmgren, a Victor Wembanyama, in order to be somebody that plays as a front court linchpin. That I think the best pathway forward for New Orleans or, or any team that had Zion Williamson on it would be to have length and size and, and interchangeable pieces where in some closing lineup you might be able to play Zion either as a, a five against like a non-screening big or be able to hide him in the corner and have the defensive infrastructure with length, with switching elsewhere to be able to make up for that. And, and having a piece like a Herb Jones, having length of a guy like a Brandon Ingram, being able to throw out you know Larry Nance in New Orleans, I think they're all intentional moves designed by that front office with that exact construct in mind, that this is the pathway forward to building a successful defense around Zion Williamson. I'm not willing to bail on him defensively just because I don't think we've seen that yet. So here would be my question. How this is something we talked about on the win loss, uh, win total over unders with Robbie Calland. In terms of constructing lineups around Zion Williamson, how worried are you about his lack of shooting? Because to get Herb Jones on the court, you basically have to commit to either Herb Jones getting way better as a shooter, way more confident as a shooter, let's say. Like he needs to be like 36% on five to six attempts per game, as opposed to, I think he hit like 35% on like between one and two attempts per game this year, if I remember correctly. Uh, Having Zion on the court, I think, makes it harder to have non-shooters out there. You're essentially getting a guy that we think is kind of a liability in terms of defense and space and kind of a liability in terms of floor spacing. Now, his floor spacing is that it's going toward the basket. He's drawing everyone toward the rim, and then everyone else should be open like around the uh, three-point line, right? Because that's just kind of, or at least there should be one or two guys open behind the three-point line whenever Zion is driving toward the basket. Um, how worried are you about lineup construction around Zion? Like having Herb Jones out there, yeah, it's great in theory, but if Herb is a slightly less than league average shooter and Zion is a not league average shooter, and then, you know, you have Jonas Valanciunas, like it's hard to find centers that are shooters at this point, even still, despite the fact that it feels like there are more and more of them coming out. It's hard to find centers that can like really anchor a defense and shoot, which is what I really think you need around Zion. I think it's very possible to construct a defense around Zion that really works. I just think it's harder to do. And I think there are a bit more limitations with it with Evan Mobley. I don't really see those limitations right now. Cause like, I I actually, I'll be honest with you. Like I think Evan's going to like, when I watch Evan shoot, I'm like, okay, I think this is probably going to be fine. Yeah, I think Mobley's shot will come around. For me, with with the New Orleans question, I still think that there's a possibility that the the best Pelicans lineup is essentially Zion and Herb at the four and five in some regard. And you just space it with the other three guys. You put Trey Murphy in a corner. You have Brandon Ingram out there, and you get C.J. McCollum. And it's length, kind of two through five. C.J., who's a guy out there on the defensive end of the floor, but I, I'm going to roll with the skill on the offensive end being able to come through it. I don't worry as much 
about a lack of spacing around Zion as the primary scoring option as I would with any other type of non-shooting ball handler driver because Zion is just physically capable of finishing through eight bodies that are going to run into him as he's driving to the rim. He's going to be okay finishing at the basket. It's just about controlling who takes those kick-out opportunities. And if you have three other shooters on the floor, I think the Pelicans will be fine. I dig it. I, I think that um, I, I get that argument. I'm worried about even that lineup you said, right? Like Zion Williamson, Herb Jones, Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum, and then like a fifth guy. I'm worried about that team on defense. Yeah, like yeah. Brandon is Brandon has gotten better defensively, but like he's not always as impactful as what you would like to see him be. CJ is not an awesome defender. Zion's obviously not an awesome defender, and you have a not awesome defender at the five, which is going to be concerning just in general. Like, even if you have Herb and Trey Murphy out there, both of whom I really like, and then you have four guys between six foot seven and six foot ten, right? Like, that's still that's still hard. I don't know, man. Yeah. Like it's I think that's what makes it tricky with Zion. And with Evan, it just feels a little bit cleaner for me if I'm building a team right now. And maybe that's me being overly optimistic about Evan Mobley's offense. But like, if Evan Mobley is the best defensive player in the league, let's say he's a top three defensive player in the league, because that seems to be where this is going, right? Um, And then he averages... I mean, I don't think it's aggressive to say 21 points, nine rebounds, four to five assists, right? Like that feels, that feels like reasonable at this point for Evan. If like not aggressive at all, I think like pretty conservative. I I feel like that's a top five player in the league, like pretty clearly. Yeah. Again, it's no, it's a good argument. I just, uh, this is a good one. I keep going back to the offense trips defense thing, and I'm, yeah. I'm quite okay having a piece like Zion who is literally unguardable, even if you stick Evan Mobley yeah. on him. Yeah, Zion has a chance to be the best offensive player in the league. Yeah, uh, there's like that. That is his ceiling. Uh, he just averaged 27 points and seven rebounds and four assists over 61 games uh, as a 20 year old while shooting 61 percent from the field. Like. It is not an exaggeration to say Zion Williamson's upside is best offensive player in the league. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I just think there are a number of factors that push me toward sure. Mobley. Okay. Okay. Number three on the prospect wars. It's a battle of the Tyrese's. Two guys that I had as lottery picks, two guys that I considered to be the steals of the 2020 NBA draft. Tyrese Maxey versus Tyrese Halliburton. Maxey had a terrific season last season for a great playoff uh, 76ers team where he has emerged into like arguably the piece that like has transformed them from, you know, maybe being in some trouble due to roster roster decisions that they've made over the last couple of years to still having like a very real strong chance to winning an NBA title. Uh, in the Joel Embiid era versus Tyrese Halliburton, who was traded last season and went to Indiana. And all he did was average, I believe, 19 points, nine assists, 
and five rebounds. Uh, no, four rebounds. I'm sorry. It was 18, nine, and four rebounds with 1.8 steals while shooting 50% from the field, 41% from three, and 85% from the line as essentially the Indiana Pacers point guard and number one option. Tyrese Maxey versus Tyrese Halliburton, two drastically different players in terms of play style. I told you I would go first this time. Okay. Thank God. (sighs) This is a really hard one for me because one thing that I do tend to value quite strongly is the ability to create your own shot. And I think that Tyrese Maxey has that ability over Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, I believe that his ability to get his own shot is a real differentiator for him when it comes down to playoff time. Tyrese Halliburton has improved in that capacity, though. He's gotten a lot better at it. And I think there's a part of me that thinks Tyrese Halliburton and his ability to just genuinely make every single player on the court better all of the time, every single minute that he's on the court. He's also a little bit better of a team defender, uh, always in the right spot rotation, really dis- really disruptive. I don't know, man. This is a hard one. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Where yeah. are you at on it? I am 50-50 split. I still ha- I'm thinking right now. Like I, I had an answer for all of these before we got on the podcast. This is the one I did not. I, I really don't know where to go in this regard. So I'm breaking it down in a couple of different ways. You'd mentioned making everybody else better. I don't know how to quantify that, but if I'm building a team, I think that what Halliburton brings fits really, really well next to any type of player, because we know he's going to make pick and pop bigs, rim running bigs, spot up shooters, other great, you know, all-star isolation scorers. He makes all of them better. But we just watched Tyrese Maxey, like you said, be the guard that resurrected a team that already has two all-stars. And as we've discussed before, future Hall of Famers on it. One of them is a perennial MVP candidate. And he blends in so well. That I don't know how I feel about the making, making everybody better just being a pure advantage for Halliburton because Maxey already does it. He just does it in a different yeah. way. I had questions yeah. around Maxey coming into the league about his jump shot how consistently he would be able to play off ball. I thought it was a little bit low of a release, a little bit of a line drive shot. Is he going to be underrated? Both of these guys similar, like in terms of like questions, like they both look like they should make shots. Halliburton, like honestly, maybe doesn't look like he should make shots, but he's just been a great shooter at every single level that he's ever been at. So you just kind of have to trust it at some point, but continue. I'm sorry. No, I I think with Maxi, just looking at the numbers from this year, 45% on his catch and shoot looks 57.5% on corner threes. That makes other players better. It's not the same as setting the table for everybody 10 times a game like Halliburton is on pace to do, but man, does it play well off of other great star players. So a lot of the answer to me has to be dependent on who else you're building your roster with, what you prefer for your your other star players. I don't think either of these guys are best served as a number one option, but I think both are really high caliber second or third guys to really have. And, and it, I keep wanting to lead myself to the direction where I, I pick Maxi 
but then I keep thinking about how we're essentially talking about Halliburton finishing the year as a 20-point, 10-assist guy who can go 50-40-90. Uh, I'm beating myself up over this one. I'm completely torn. I don't know if anything I've said has sparked uh, inspiration in you to lean one way or the other, <laughs> but I'm, I'm lost here, my friend. This is a gross one. This is just a really gross one. Uh, here, here's, here's one question I will pose for you. So Tyrese Maxey hit 57% of his corner threes last year. Yeah. Um, do we think that anything Tyrese Maxey did last year as a shooter was slightly unsustainable? He hit 43% on four attempts per game with, look, he's just not going to shoot 57% from the corners, right? Like that's just not going to happen necessarily. Um, but do we think, like, wh- where are you on Tyrese Maxey's jumper? Because if you believe he is, like, an elite-level jump shooter, I think he is – oh, man. I think it'd have to be him if you think that elite is the the word that you're throwing around because he is so yeah. solid defensively because he has a much better first step than Halliburton because he is so strong in all those intangible areas. Like, to me, Halliburton wins battles with guys because he's smarter, because he brings every single intangible yeah. to the table. Maxi excels in those categories too. That, that it's, oh man, I, I wouldn't call Maxi. Yeah, it is. I, I wouldn't call Maxi an elite level shooter. I think he's going to be an above average shooter year after year and might have one season every four or five where he pops above 40%. Okay. I'm going to go Tyrese Halliburton. And part of this could be like my own biases in terms of what I love in terms of players. Uh, I love that Tyrese Halliburton makes every single person on the court better. I love that we've seen him play with a real lead guard next to De'Aaron Fox. And he was every bit is good. Like you look at his numbers to start the year in Sacramento where he started every game, uh, 14 points, seven assists, four rebounds while shooting 56% or 46% from the field, 41% from three. Then he spikes in terms of like role and usage in Indiana where, you know, I know that the usage rate says that like it went from like 18 to 20, but Tyrese Halliburton, like he's never going to be a usage rate guy because of how quickly he processes things. He never is like a high level, like over dribbler, which is the guys that I think tend to be usage rate guys. Um, and it, he got even better, like when the role became more centralized, right? Uh, he is just a, it's a fascinating, he, he's a fascinating player in the way that he just, impacts what you're doing out there on the court i mean man it's hard because like they were indiana's offense when he was on the court last year averaged 118 points per 100 possessions and that was an offense that his most common lineup that halliburton played with last year uh in indiana that is was Malcolm Brogdon, Buddy Heald, Isaiah Jackson, O'Shea Brissett. Like, that shouldn't be a 118 points per 100 possessions offense. Like, those guys can shoot and they can handle a little bit and, like, they can do stuff. Great rim runner and Isaiah Jackson. But, like, on an NBA court, that's not, like, a 118, is it? <laughs> like, it's, I mean, 
It's just wild. He's so good. I, yeah, I love yeah. him. I, I would take Tyrese Halliburton just by a little bit. And it's a credit to Tyrese Maxey that he's even in this conversation to yeah. me. Uh, I would go just by a hair. Tyrese Halliburton. Um, I don't feel good about that, though. I you, love him. I love them both. You've swung me with just that that piece there on the offensive numbers in, in Indiana. 52% to 48% Tyrese Halliburton. Twitter, make sure you back us up on that and show how razor thin this is. But, like, this was this was pulling teeth on this one, Sam. Yeah, no, that, was a, that was a difficult one. I will say, like, on the defensive end, Halliburton does have some real concerns in terms of playing on the ball when the playoffs roll around. Uh, I do have some just like slight worries, but I think his worry is strength more than anything right now. And I think he can add 10 pounds to where he gets strong enough to like mitigate some of those concerns as he gets older with, with Maxi, I think the body is like a little bit more, not a lot more, but like a little bit more maxed out, I guess is what I would say. Just don't don't give me the opportunity to swing back towards Maxi. I, I okay. can't. I Let's can't move keep on. doing this. We're yet. done. Oh my god. We're done. We're done with it. Uh, next up, prospect war number four. Two guys that are went number four overall. They are, I believe, the same age. I'm going to check that. One of them uh, is born August 26th, 2001. The other one was born. August 19th, 2000. So actually, okay. they're year not the same. Age. There's, there's a year difference here. And the guy that's older was just drafted this year. It is Keegan Murray versus Patrick Williams. Pat Williams is fascinating. Like, this is just so interesting because, like, Pat Williams in college was a sixth man. Uh, Keegan Murray in college, like, should have won National Player of the Year last year and was, like, unbelievable, right? Uh, And was the do-everything guy for Iowa and, like, had the ball on every single possession. Patrick Williams enters the NBA at 19 years old and has to, like, fight for his – just to, like, get his sea legs under him in the NBA, right? Uh, Keegan Murray gets to – developmentally expand his game in a slow, steady way that just kind of shows that there are like different, different ways, right? Like there's such different ways to reach the same end goal. These guys literally reach the same end goal in terms of the NBA draft going forth overall, uh, both about six foot eight, both about 200 and I don't know, 30, 235 pounds, let's say. Uh, I don't know. Keegan's Keegan's listed lower. And I think Pat Williams is listed lower, but both these guys, like they look like they're like two thirty, not two fifteen, right? They're big dudes. They are big, thick, like wide shouldered dudes. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So Keegan Murray or Patrick Williams, who would you take moving forward? Adam Spinella. So I am probably going to go against the the consensus on this one. I'm taking Patrick Williams. Uh, okay. And I'll. to me, it comes into the question is about where you're hopping into the, the market, right? This is pre any NBA game footage from Keegan Murray, a little bit in summer yeah. league. We haven't seen exactly what he's going to be able to do. So, I believe this is the first conversation we've had tonight about a rookie. 
It is. Yeah. I'll be honest. Like I didn't really want to do rookies when we did this. We have another one with a rookie that I think is just fun, but yeah, like I wasn't an enormous fan of like, right getting rookies in here because I, I wanted to do more prospects but we did it anyway because this these two matchups were just too fun well and it, it's i think that's what makes this really challenging for some people is where is keegan murray really gonna end up if you believe that he's gonna be the exact same player we saw in summer league take keegan murray over patrick williams every single time if you think that there might be some scalable issues at the nba level he's just not gonna have the ball in his hands as much as he did at iowa or this summer then there might be a reason to to take Patrick Williams. The reason I'm high on on Patrick Williams is, quite frankly, the flashes that we saw from him at the end of the season. I have been hearing since the summer after he was drafted, hang on, he's taken a step. He's so much better with the ball in his hands. He can create in ways that, you know, we haven't really seen before from, from, from him in college. And, I never believed that it was actually going to come, but over the, the course of the final few games of the regular season last year when he got healthy and the playoffs, I thought it really got there. Final six games of the regular season, 16 points, six boards, one and a half assists, made 10 frees in six games, and, and finished the, the regular season with a 35-4-4 and four night. That was pretty much it to me. I think part of the reason Pat Will is – um, underutilized as an offensive piece is because of the team that he plays on, that Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan are very demanding of on-ball reps. You've got to utilize Vucevic when he's there. And what Pat Will doesn't do as well as everybody else is space the floor. I think he can be an adequate shooter, but the value to me is, is him being just a, a physical driver when he's attacking north-south that can just run guys over. And I value that. I value that explosiveness. I I value the playmaking that I think is going to come with it. I am anticipating a Patrick Williams breakout over the next year or two. And that's why I'm going with him. So this is a great, great question (laughs) because I don't know. This is the one where I didn't know what to do uh, coming in. You, you had the last one, uh, I leaned Halliburton coming into the conversation and I leaned it coming out. This is the one where I just didn't know what to do whenever we were talking. And, you know, you, you bring up the idea of he dropped two 20 point playoff games as well. Like this is the thing. Like I know that they were, you know, the, the fourth game, particularly in that series against Milwaukee was a blowout, but like, he was really good in that playoff series. I thought like, I thought he played well and showcased some of the things uh, that you were looking for in Chicago. Do you think we're going to see the best out of Patrick Williams? Because a lot of what you're saying in terms of like role Vucevic likes to be in that mid post area. Uh, obviously DeMar is going to dominate that mid post area. Uh, I feel like they. Have, this is something again that we talked about on the win loss or the win total over unders podcast with Robbie Callan. I do feel like they should move Vucevic because I feel like it's hard to make all of their more important pieces work with Vucevic's presence there. Plus, he's not adding a crazy amount defensively to the equation here. So I, I'd be interested to see what it looks like with Pat Williams if they were able to move him. Um. Yeah, I mean, Pat Williams, it does just kind of come down to the shot 
for like both of these guys, I feel like Pat Williams, you know, made 39% of his threes his rookie year, made 52% last year in like that limited sample size. And then in the playoffs, you know, made 33% over those five games. Like, and then same with Keegan, like, do we just believe Keegan's jump shot? Like, unequivocally right i if i made you pick which jump shot do you believe in more right now i think i would pick keegan murray by a hair yeah yeah i I think i would pick keegan murray uh i think that i trust keegan's ability to like get leverage on people i think pat williams is stronger than keegan but i think keegan's like frame pat has those like bolder shoulders whereas keegan is like has more just like a great like strength throughout his torso and like his lower half and like he can just kind of move guys and he knows how to get leverage on guys as a driver not just as a post player right yeah the the way i think about it is patrick williams is better at initiating contact when he's already moving towards the rim keegan is the type of guy that's never going to get bumped off of his spots if a defender initiates contact with him yeah yeah oh man this is so like reasonable expectations for this season would be like 15 5 and like two or three for keegan 15 5 and two maybe for keegan and then like what is your expectation for Pat Williams? Do you think because he plays on a better team, obviously, and like you know the role will be different. Obviously, again, you know a guy that is going to be best driving to the basket, but uh, you know maybe doesn't get as many opportunities there. Yeah, I'd I think you know statistically, like fourteen five and one and a half is probably a solid year. But as I was at you know attacking this exercise, I'm thinking about roster construction, blank slate. Who are we taking yeah. on our team and finding ways to, to plug into a style that we can build around? I think Keegan is very scalable next to a lot of really good players. I think Patrick Williams has the ability to turn into a really, really good player. And that was the the slight difference for me. I think there's still more untapped upside for him than for Keegan. I like Pat a little bit more defensively. Yep. Uh, I think he's just a bit stronger. I think he moves just a little bit better than Keegan does. I think that he uses his length a little bit better off the ball. I think that Keegan is a better ball handler, just a more functional, like tighter handle in, in terms of being able to create shots. I think this is another one of those, like I mentioned this in the Anthony Edwards, Scotty Barnes conversation, like, I think that like the median outcome for Keegan Murray is probably higher than Pat Williams median outcome. I think Pat's ceiling, I think he's a better athlete and like just has a little bit better frame than Keegan. And that if that comes together, his ceiling is probably higher than Keegan's. What does that mean in terms of which one that I take? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think either of these guys are like number one options long-term. I think I would go, I think I would go Keegan just by a hair by a, I don't know. This is a heart. This is this. These two are razor thin. This is really, I, I think that 
in this circumstance, given that I don't think either of these guys will be number one options, I think I would take the guy that I think is a little bit more certain to be like a really good number three or number yep. four in Keegan than Pat. I, but I think I, Pat has a higher upside if it all goes right. Yeah. And and I think that's really fair. The flip side of the coin for me is that I will, the, the tie goes to the guy who's already been in the league, that there's still yeah. a little bit of uncertainty with Keegan Murray of what he's actually going to look like on an NBA floor surrounded by other highly talented NBA players. Where but, we don't have like, that with Pat. But like with Pat, we've only really seen like a 15 game sample of him being like really good, you know, like his, his rookie season was fine. Mm -hmm. And then like that late season push for Pat was like the part, right? I don't know, man. I I think I would, I think Keegan by a hair for the reasons I said, but that's a, that's a good one. That's a really good toss up one. Okay. Number five, Desmond Bain versus Josh Giddy. You could not have picked two more different players if you tried Adam Spinella. Uh, this is a fascinating one. Desmond Bain, a guy that just has continued to get better and better and better, entered the league after four years at TCU. Josh Giddy, essentially a one and done in the NBL. Josh Giddy's main concern long-term is his shooting ability. Uh, Desmond Bain is one of the league's absolute best three-point shooters. Josh Giddy has some defensive concerns. Uh, Desmond Bain has, you know, some length concerns where guys can shoot over the top of him occasionally, but for the most part does a really, really good job of getting into guys' space and causing problems defensively. Some people have some concerns about Desmond Bain's upside because of his handle. I actually quite like Josh's ability to play point. That was a concern I had coming into last year, but that's basically gone now. I would take Desmond here personally. Uh, I know the difference in terms of age. You know, Desmond Bain is 24 years old. Josh Giddy, I believe, just turned 20, if I remember correctly. Um, or no, he turns 20 here within the next month. So he's actually still a teenager. Um, I know the difference in age is like four years. I still would take Dez by a hair because I think that his handle just continues to get drastically better every single time I see him. And I would bet on the elite shooting and plus defense from the wing. Um, but I will be interested to hear your case. I, I totally agree with you for a lot of the reasons that you outlined. I am, uh, I'm taking Desmond Bain in this one. And it goes back to something I said a little bit earlier in the Maxi versus Halliburton debate, that there are multiple ways to make your teammates better. A lot mm-hmm. of times our mind goes directly to those pass-first guys who set everybody up for assists and are just maestros with the ball in their hands. And I think there's very little doubt Josh Giddy is some version of a basketball genius. I know you've called him that before. He's an incredibly yeah, he ser- he's, incredibly he's cerebral a genius basketball player. Yeah. Super, super smart. And I think he's going to maximize his ability to make an impact as a result of that. But making other people better also involves spacing the floor and providing a threat away from the basket that opens it up for everybody else to get rim attempts. 
that doesn't allow you to be left alone when you need to double team a superstar. I don't think Josh Giddy has the capability to become a number one option on offense. He's a really, really good passer, but the scoring, even if he develops a mediocre jump shot, is not going to put the fear of God in somebody in a one-on-one situation. Desmond Bain has turned himself into a player that has relatively few holes in his game. And at the end of the day, I'm going to value that more than somebody who can make a lot of positive things happen on a court, but has some spacing concerns in the offensive end. And that one flaw that I think come playoff time can get really exposed. So, yeah, the the big question is here, what do you think of Josh's shot long-term? If you think Josh is going to be a 35% three-point shooter, uh, he has a chance to be an all-star just straight up, like very, real chance he's that smart he's that good of a passer uh i would expect that his ceiling he will be a top top seven top six passer in the world like something like that once he continues to even learn more about like manipulating defenders and being able to um get where he wants and then make kick out reads like he's a genius I, i have no problem saying that um i think des is a bit more scalable toward a winning situation, I guess is what I would say. Um, And on top of it, we started to see more and more later in the year that Dez was capable of taking on a bigger offensive load when the team needed him to, when John Morant was out, for instance, like if you look at Desmond Baines last, like, I I don't know. uh, I mean, he he was awesome for so long, but like, if if you look at his last, let's go with, uh, here I'm, I'm pulling up a number. If you look at his last 18 games this past season or 20 games this past season, 20 points per game, 46% from the field, 48% from three, 88% from the line. Uh, Des is just such a weapon as a shooter. He's a plus defender. He's getting better as a ball handler. Uh, He's continued to get better at every step. And so has Josh Giddy, by the way. And Josh's upside, I think, is very high uh, if it all breaks right. But, like, I think Desmond Bain has an outside chance to be an all-star this year. Uh, if Given the fact that Jaron Jackson is going to be out, there are going to be shots up for grabs. Uh, given the fact that they're going to need, like, a real secondary guy to step up in an even bigger way. Given the fact that he continues to get better and he averaged 18 points per game while shooting 46% from the field and 43% from three last year on high-volume three-point attempts. Like, if Desmond Bain averages 22 points per game on that efficiency while playing continually good defense... That puts him in the all-star mix. I don't know if he'll be an all-star, but like he is in the conversation at that point for being an all-star. So look, this isn't disrespectful to Josh's upside. I just think that I would take the more finished product in Dez right now that is a just better better player uh, in like whose game scales toward a winning situation unless Josh like drastically overhauls the jump shot. Yeah, I mean, it's about when are you getting in on the ride, right? Desmond Bain, a little farther on in his career, a little bit more of a known commodity. There's safety and security in the consistent level of production that he provides. Josh Giddy undoubtedly has a higher upside, but there's one major flaw and question mark that might prevent him from getting there. And at the end of the day, I agree with you. We've already seen how Bain helps a team win, and 
I'm going to roll with that. I don't even know that he has a higher upside. That's kind of where I'm at on this. Right. Like, yeah. He just Fair. keeps getting better. He just yeah. really keeps getting better. Uh, okay. Our last one, number six, prospect war. Franz Wagner, AKA slap the bag 2023 <laughs> versus Jabari Smith. Franz Wagner is coming off of just a ridiculous yeah. Eurobasket, an unbelievable Eurobasket performance. He's coming off of an unbelievable rookie season where in most other year, in a large number of other years would have been the rookie of the year. Like pretty obviously and clearly, I thought there was a real case to vote him number three over Cade Cunningham. Uh, I probably wouldn't have done it. I thought Cade's final, as I've said, like 25 games, 30 games of the season was the best stretch we saw from any rookie last year. But you know, Franz over the course of the entire year was more consistent uh, and was just absolutely terrific. Jabari Smith is Jabari Smith, and he's six foot ten, and is maybe the best shooter uh, that is six foot ten or taller that I've seen enter the NBA. He's a versatile, mobile, awesome defensive player. I think Jabari is great. I think Franz is great. This is an impossible one. Spins. <laughs> I mean, the other reason I, I wanted to, to ask this question, not just because of the, the rookie comparison versus a guy who's already been in the league for one year, but the changing of attitudes based on what we've seen over the last couple of months. That if you'd asked me in late June, right before the draft, I'm going Jabari Smith 100%. If you ask me right after Summer League, I'm probably really split 50-50, maybe trending a little bit more towards Franz. And you ask me after Eurobasket, as we're just seeing here, I think I'm finally going for Franz. And and I don't view this as a recency bias issue. I view this as course correction for myself constantly underrating what Franz provides. That he is... And him getting better. like He's gotten a lot better. He didn't really do what he's doing now at Michigan. We show we saw some pick and roll dexterity at Michigan. We didn't see anything near what he has become as a ball handler, particularly at Michigan. Uh, and I know he was young. He was like you know a very very young freshman and sophomore when he was there. But th- th- what we've seen from him is different. It, there 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 are new inputs to his skill set and new inputs into his evaluation because he has gotten better and better at every step of the way. And, and that's the difference between what we've seen in Eurobasket or from his performance this summer, even versus his rookie year, is that a lot of it was catching on the move, attacking closeouts, being able to leverage his basketball IQ from knocking down a shot to making the right read his next play. He is doing a lot more creation with the ball in his hands to the point where he is probably the number two option in this offense long-term next to Paolo Bancaro, and it's not close. Uh, He's really, really good. And a smart, adequate defender. I don't know if I want to call him a great guy. I don't know if you disagree with that. I I think adequate is probably the right term for Franz on that end of the floor. I'd say he's a plus defender. I wouldn't say he's like an all-defense guy long-term, but I would say... Probably a plus defender does get beaten on the ball a little bit more than what you'd like, but a really, really sharp off ball defender, good team defender, high IQ. Um, and obviously just has the length and size. Like he is now, 
I mean, he's got to be at least six ten now, right? Yeah. Like he, he's yeah, gotten he's, big. Yep. And and then that's the difference with Jabari Smith on the defensive end. I think Jabari is a better on ball defender, but not close to the type of team construct help positional defender that a guy like Franz is. Just very, very different in terms of how they impact the game. And, and I'll say this too, like Franz has gotten really, really good as a pick and roll player. Like even in the NBA season last year, like it, he showed some real flashes as a pick and roll ball handler, creator, like really, really made some high level reads from time to time. I thought in that capacity uh just looking through synergy here for instance he had almost 500 pick and roll ball handler possessions so he was getting you know seven or eight of those a game basically last year uh and they were comfortable with him as that secondary creator you know next to a cole anthony at times next to a jalen suggs when he was out there um at times next to markel fultz obviously so this is a skill that he has shown on the NBA court and just looks to have gotten better over the summer that he continues like to add things to his game. Like he's hitting step back jumpers now uh, at a high, like it looks like he's clean and fluid with them. Uh, he is driving to the basket. He is someone that I think is a pretty capable passer and playmaker. Like, yeah. To And this is, I think that Jabari is probably a better shooter and I think he is a better defender than Franz Wagner is. And when we talk about guys scaling to winning situations, um, those are the skills you look for in terms of like mitigating downside risk, basically. Right. But in terms of upside at this point, Franz's improved ball handling ability is just like, it's a real differentiator and factor in this conversation. Like he is a legit high level creator. Now, um, if he averaged like 21, 22 points this year, I wouldn't be stunned by that at all. That's kind of where I am on him. Like where, where are you on that? I think in the 18 to 20 range is probably a little bit more of like safe for me, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't yeah. blow me out of the water as being a, a major shock. He's just, for, for for reference, he averaged 15 points, yeah. three assists on 47% from the field, 35% from three last year. I think what has taken me a little bit more time to realize with Franz is his output and volume last year weren't just a byproduct of playing on an Orlando Magic team that was not filled with a ton of polished, experienced creators and yeah. had a lot of injuries. I, I thought that was the case a lot of times as I was watching them play the lineups that they had out there, it's very much not. He is that. It's not. Well, no, here's the thing. When you watch him too, it all comes within the flow. Like even when they get him like ball screen opportunities, like it feels like it's a part of the offense. And then if it's not there, he's just kicking it out and moving it along within to keep Orlando, like within the flow. Like, it's not like, you know, for instance, like Houston at times last year with Jalen green, Mm -hmm. like they let Jalen rock like for, you know, large portions of the time. And they should have done that. I'm not saying that like in a derogatory way. I'm not saying that like in any type of like negative manner. I just mean this in terms of, you know, you you let your guy go and Orlando, they let Franz do some stuff here and there. They certainly upped his usage rate and like upped his load as the season went on, but it, it never felt like it was, 
oh yeah, we got to let Franz go right now. And with Eurobasket, like there are times where it feels like Germany is like, oh no, we got to let Franz go and it's working. Like it's, it's rolling from time to time. Uh, yeah. Yep. Man, and, Franz, and, Franz has been ridiculous. Well, and Jabari is kind of the antithesis of that, that he, you have yeah. to be able to run plays for him, pick and pop isolations at the elbow, things that are going to allow him to get open. And, and I thought in his film at Auburn, when those opportunities weren't presenting themselves, he can disappear for times. He can float. Franz Wagner, you're keenly aware of when he's on the floor every single possession because he's reversing the ball quickly or he's attacking a closeout. You don't have to run things for him, and he's still incredibly impactful. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Franz has just been really, really good. Uh, And look, we shouldn't underrate Jabari here. Jabari, I think, has legit all-star upside. I think that you know his defensive ability, his shooting particularly – they're going to be like genuine impacts for Houston this season. Like they're going to be huge for Houston this season. The ball handling and the passing are the two differentiators for me that make me go Franz just very slightly over Jabari right now. Um, But I love them both. Like they're both, you know, real potential all-star caliber players at the end of the day. We talked about, Essentially 13 players today, Sam. The the 12 in the yeah. head-to-head matchups and Victor Wembanyama. I'm taking every one of them on a team if I can and finding a way to make it work. But that's the the beauty of this conversation is sometimes you have to make a choice between two different guys. And and that comes down to draft time. That comes down to free agency when you when you have real decisions to make as a front office or an organization. It's challenging to do when you've got guys who are very neck and neck in a lot of areas. Yeah. Uh, Spins, what have you watched over the weekend or over the week? I've not watched a lot during the week, and I've watched a lot of college football this weekend. Uh, I'm uh, I'm enjoying having a little bit of – I got cable TV for the first time in like seven years, Sam. So I can actually sit on my couch and watch these games yeah. live as opposed to you know cramming around a laptop for the day. And or having something on in the background for noise. Really just enjoy having live sports back on. Fall is one of my favorite times of the year here in the States. Finally, a little bit less humid. Football all day Saturday, football all day Sunday. Uh, I'm very content kind of having that be my, my schedule right now. I watched a movie called The Invitation last night with natalie emmanuel who uh was in game of thrones uh one of the guys from gossip girl like the new gossip girl update uh was not good would not recommend (laughs) that's my take would not recommend but that's all i've watched since um the last time that we podcasted because Australian football had their playoffs on and uh, Laura and I are rewatching Abbott elementary and we're watching the terminal list, which seemingly is interminable uh, at this point uh, in terms of trying to get to a conclusion. Uh, Fun, really, really dumb, fun show in a beautiful way. Like it's not as good as, did you watch Reacher on Amazon prime? Mm -mm. Reacher is like, beautiful it it is Mm -hmm. like one of the most it's the most fun i've had watching a tv show this year maybe uh it is just pure like stupid action tv show in the best possible way uh this is like trying to be elevated that 
but it's just not that, unfortunately. Uh, and I, I'm still enjoying watching it, but it is, uh, I, I just wish it was like 10% better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like 10% work, like 10% less serious, maybe might be a different way to put it. Like if it didn't take itself so seriously, I don't know. Uh, it's, I'm still enjoying it. I shouldn't say that like it's a bad TV show. I'm still enjoying Terminal List, but Good. yeah. Um, okay. Spins. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people about the new announcement you made this week uh, for your Substack. Yeah. So find me at the box and one underscore uh, on YouTube at Adam Spinella or theboxin1.substack.com. We're adding a new feature coming up soon, uh, something I've been working on a lot throughout the summer to try to get rolling and ready here. We're essentially doing the Boxin' One scouting service where we're going to have player breakdowns, scouting reports, ideal role uh, placement on somewhere around the ballpark of 400 to 500 players that we'll be able to get online and, and add to it throughout the year as we scout and see more people. But should be a great resource for draft heads for any teams organizations out there looking for just another set of eyes and cheat sheets. But uh, it's been a lot of work to go into the process. I'm thrilled to be able to, to get it started here and hopefully that'll supplement a lot of the work that we do and serve as a, just a consistent bank of information to people to go back to, as opposed to always needing to wait for whatever article or piece comes out next. I can't imagine something that will be more valuable, particularly for college coaches as the transfer portal stuff starts to kick in. Um, Cause that's just something that they're constantly looking for is just like a quick, smart evaluation on guys uh, and players and how they would fit into a role, how would they fit into their scheme? Right. So yeah, that, that seems like a really valuable tool. Uh, As you've noticed, I've banked a few episodes of the podcast this week. Uh, I pre-recorded the two win total uh, over-unders with Robbie that went out on Saturday morning and then Monday morning. This will go out, I think, Wednesday morning uh, in terms of timing. And... I'll try and get one more up this week at some point. But to be honest, I'm trying to like bank a few up so that I can start pre-writing the draft guide. Basically that's, that's I'm trying to take this week to like try and knock out like is, you know, maybe six or seven pages of the draft guide early this year so that I'm not like scrambling late and working 18 hour days. Um, and, and that just feels like a good use of my time before the season really kicks into play. But That means you're probably not going to see a ton of like new content for me on the athletic, but you are going to continue to get podcasts, which is great and exciting. Uh, Spins, we're going to have to do this again. Prospect Wars was fun. Yeah, it was absolutely a blast. Let's just make sure that the questions are a little bit easier next time, because I don't know if I can take the stress of this one more time. Yeah, this was hard. Uh, we, we're, we're like trying to work through an idea for next week. We're not sure what we're going to do yet, but we're trying to, trying to game plan through something. Uh, but, That'll be it. Until next time, we will talk soon.